you open your Bibles at Romans 7 verse 4, please? Romans 7 verse 4. I've often said the church has as much desire for the word evangelism as the world has for the word righteousness. Years ago, I was in a large church in Redondo Beach in California, and I'd been asked to do an evangelism seminar, and it was a Saturday morning, I turned up. As I drove into the parking lot, there were hundreds of cars. I was so encouraged until I went inside and found out there was a woman's meeting on, and I got about 30 people to the evangelism seminar. Some years later, I was in Nashville, and as I drove into the park, I was being driven to the parking lot, cars were streaming into the parking lot, and I was the only speaker that night. There was no woman's meeting. I was so encouraged until I saw a, a police car out front. There'd been an accident, and they were directing traffic through the parking lot and out the other side. <laughs> so we're greatly encouraged to have such a good turnout. And while I appreciate the power of Kirk's uh, celebrity and the wonderful promotional work done by Todd Friel and the team at KKMS, I can't help but believe that God is behind all this. (laughs) Kirk shared a little bit of his uh, testimony. I'd like to share a little bit of mine. I was saved in 1972 out of the surfing scene. I think the idea is with surfers is that you try and look as much like seaweed as you can. <laughs> and I'd arrive bright uh, orange corduroys and bright turquoise shirt with big white flowers. I kind of looked like something a cat dragged in. And that's why I was very surprised when a 91-year-old Presbyterian minister came into my surf shop. He came up to me and says, I hear you've become a Christian. I've come to congratulate you. And he shook my hand. He left $10 in my hand. I like that man from the moment I met him. <laughs> anyway, from that time on, we built a wonderful relationship. Here's me out of the hippie culture, and this guy's 91, I was 22. And we had such a close relationship because we're born of the same spirit. One day his wife called and said, George is about to die. Would you come and be with us at this time? I said, sure. So I drove around there, and she opened the door, went to the bedroom, and... and she was on the phone. The phone was right by the bedroom door. It had a very loud ring because George was partly deaf. And she ushered me in. And George looked pretty bad. He didn't have his teeth in. I sat next to him. Took him by the hand. He said, Is that you, Ray? And I said, Yes, it's George. I've come to be with you at this time. And I thought, What an incredible privilege. He said, I'm going to be with Jesus. I thought, What an honor I've got to be present when a saint goes marching through to glory. You see, a saint isn't someone who's been dead for 300 years and has fat babies flying shoulder height. That's not a saint. A saint is anybody who's repented and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Don't believe it? Read the epistles to the Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, to the saints at Ephesus, Colossians, etc. As I sat there for the next 20 minutes, I began thinking, what an honor I have, what a privilege I have to be present, this man of God, as he passes into glory. And I began thinking... How will he go, Lord? How will he go? And after 20 minutes, he lifted his hand to the sky, pointed his finger toward the heavens and said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I thought, man, what a way to go. Suddenly the phone rang, he sat up, and I was the one that just about died. (laughs) He lasted another two years.
But when he did go, he sung that wonderful hymn, To God be the glory, great things he has done, so lovely the world that he gave us a son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go. And what a glorious gospel that we have, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. To them it said in the shadow of death, a light has sprung up. Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of the grave. And everlasting life is a free gift to all those who repent and trust in him. And what a tremendous responsibility we have to preach this gospel faithfully. I wonder if you've ever heard a testimony like this. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was a child. Then I became involved in drugs, robbery, Muggings, rape, murder, pornography, torture, gambling, money laundering, adultery, perjury, treason, extortion, and other things I'd rather not mention. (laughs) I was filled with anger, hatred, and greed. But all the time I knew the Lord and gave my heart back to him when I was 40 years old. And you've heard something like that and you've said to yourself, something doesn't quite sound right about that. Well, I trust that what I'm about to share of this teaching called True and False Conversion will shed light on that subject. 150 years ago, a great preacher said, Evermore the law must prepare the way for the gospel. He said to overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope. People believing they're saved when they're not. The introduction of a false standard of Christian experience and to fill the church with false converts. And then he said, time will make this plain. And it certainly has. A.W. Tozer said, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. D. James Kennedy said, the the vast majority of people who are members of churches in America today I'm not Christians. I say that without the slightest fear of contradiction. I base it on empirical evidence of 24 years of examining thousands of people. And of course, Jesus warned that on the day of judgment, many would come to him and say, Lord, Lord! And he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That word iniquity is lawlessness. That law is pivotal in conversion. How can a man repent if he doesn't know what sin is? The Bible says, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the same word, lawlessness. If there's no knowledge of sin, and Paul says, I had not known sin but by the law, then there's no understanding we've sinned against God and there'll be no vertical repentance. Without repentance, there's no salvation. Romans 7 verse 4 says, Wherefore, my brethren... You also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. In our book, Hal's Best Kept Secret, we share a story about a speedster. He was drunk and he drove through his hometown at a dangerous speed of 120 miles an hour. The town had no law against speeding. And so they passed the law saying that 65 miles an hour was the maximum speed. And come through this time, 120 miles an hour, he was in transgression. They grabbed him and leveled a $6,000 fine at him. No money and no words of defense, the youth is led off to prison. As he sat in prison with no hope, no means of payment, his father arrives at the door and says, Son, I know you're guilty. 
But because I love you, I sold all my worldly goods to raise the money to pay the fine for you. You're free to go. What then would the attitude of the youth be to the law? Well, he is dead to the law by the sacrifice of his father. His father paid his fine. Now the law holds no dominion over him. And what's his attitude now to his father? Why, in the light of his father's sacrifice, he is filled with a humble gratitude at such a demonstration of love. Now he'll bring forth the fruit of a new lifestyle that's pleasing in his father's sight. He'll no longer be lawless. Look at Romans 7, verse 4 again. Wherefore, my brethren, you are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. There's the sacrifice of the Father. The law has no dominion over the Christian. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The law holds no dominion because the Father paid the fine for us. D.L. Moody said, The law can only chase a man to Calvary no further. And then Scripture says, That you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So the law holds no dominion over us. We're filled with a humble gratitude to God for His mercy demonstrated in Christ, His wonderful sacrifice expressed in the cross. And now we bring forth the fruit of a new lifestyle that's pleasing to God. We are no longer workers of iniquity. So what are the fruits of a new convert? Well, according to Matthew 3, verse 8, there is the fruit of repentance. If we are soundly saved, we will have evidence of repentance. Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. If I've wronged anyone, I'll pay back fourfold. Colossians 1.10, the fruit of good works. If you read the book of Titus, Titus continually says things like, Let those who have believed in God be careful to maintain good works. Jesus himself said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Hebrews 13, verse 15, the fruit of thanksgiving. Oh, once you've seen the cross, you'll say, oh, thanks be to God for the unspeakable gift. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit. If you're soundly saved, if you're a genuine convert, you will manifest the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And Philippians 1, verse 11, the fruit of righteousness. You will do that which is right. He will lead you in paths of righteousness. And then Matthew 3, verse 13 warns, every tree that brings not forth good fruit, not ordinary fruit, but good fruit, will be cut down and cast into the fire. So as witnesses of Christ, we should do everything we can, not just to get church members, not just to get decisions or youth group members, But with God's help, we must make sure that those we bring to the Savior have the things that accompany salvation. Let's now look at Mark 4, verse 3. Mark 4, verse 3. Or, Mark 4, verse 3. (laughs) Now, whenever Scripture uses the word hearken, I once heard this said, it's like a little trumpet sounding. Hearken! And it's saying, listen carefully. Something important is about to be said. Same with the word behold. If you see the word behold, some great truth is going to be manifest. But here in the parable of the sower, in Mark 4, 
Jesus said, Hearken, behold, a double trumpet. There went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some feed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Another fell on good ground, and it did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred. And then Jesus gave the interpretation, and we know this is the preaching of the gospel, and the seed falls on hard hearts, on stony ground hearts, on thorny ground hearts, and on good soil. But in verse 13, it seems the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was speaking about. And this is what the Lord said to them. And he said to them, Do you not know this parable? How then will you understand all parables? In other words, the parable of the sower, which speaks of true and false conversion, is the key to unlock the mystery of all the other parables. Once we understand that when the gospel is preached, there is true and false conversion, then the other parables begin to make sense. The sheep and the goats dwelling together, the true and the false. The foolish virgins and the wise, the true and the false together. The bad fish and the good fish drawn into the gospel net, sitting together. The wheat and the tears growing alongside one another. The power of the sower is also in Matthew 13 and Luke 8. And what we're going to do, using the harmony of the gospels, is look at six characteristics of a false conversion. Mark 4, verse 5. There are immediate results with a false convert. That is, he hears the message, often the modern message of everlasting life, and says, I want that. There's no weighing of the issues. And yet Jesus said, what man goes to war without checking out what the enemy's got? What man builds a tower without seeing if he's got enough materials? Luke 8, verse 6. There is a lack of moisture. Matthew 13, verse 6. There is no root. Mark 4, verse 16. They receive the word with gladness. And this is a key. You see, when the law is not preached, sin is not seen as being exceedingly sinful. Paul said, by the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. And when sin is not seen in the light of what it is, being exceedingly sinful, there's no trembling before a holy God. There's no contrition, no sorrow for sin. So the false convert receives the word with gladness. He receives the word with joy. Matthew 13, verse 20. And I don't know what the difference in Scripture between joy and gladness is, but Scripture often differentiates between the two. And Luke 8, verse 13. For a while, they do believe. Now, let's just look at this video clip. We hired a real good-looking Hollywood star for this clip, so let's look at it closely. Two plants growing alongside each other. One is a small plant. doesn't look very impressive. One's a large plant and looks like it's growing really well. And if we had to pull a plant out to make room, well, most of us would say, well, that little plant's not doing very well. Let's just pull it out and give that big plant plenty of room to grow. And then we see something interesting happens. The sun comes out and the little plant that didn't look very impressive seems to be thriving under the heat of the sunlight. The second plant, the big one, seems to be withering under the heat of the sun. And then we see why this is happening. Under the soil... 
there is bedrock, so the big plant can't send its roots in deep after moisture. Now, can you see that it was the sunlight that revealed what we couldn't see? We couldn't see the soil condition, but the sunlight revealed that there was something wrong under the soil. And the same in the spiritual. The sunlight in the spiritual, that which reveals that which we cannot see, is tribulation, Matthew 13, 21, temptation, Luke 8, verse 13, and persecution, Mark 4, verse 17. These three factors reveal what you and I cannot see, the heart condition of the professing convert. Now, if you purchase an expensive house plant, one of the worst things you can do is take that plant home and say, this cost me a lot of money, I'm going to keep it away from the sunlight. I'm going to put it in a closet and shut the door. Now, that's the worst thing you can do. If you know what you're doing, you'll put the plant in the sunlight and you'll even rotate it to make sure it gets plenty of balanced light. In the same way, the worst thing you and I can do with a new convert is shield him from the sunlight of tribulation, temptation and persecution. If he is genuine, the sunlight will cause him to grow. If he is false, the sunlight will cause him to wither and die. Years ago, when Russia was in communism, the story was told of two Russian guards that burst into a prayer meeting. They were fully armed. They said, if you're not prepared to die for your faith, get out of here. And half those professing Christians left. When the doors were closed, they put their guns down, they got their Bibles out, and they said, we're believers, but we didn't want to risk fellowship until we sorted out the sheep from the goats. You know, if severe persecution fell upon the contemporary church... If we had a Russian guard cleaner, the effect would be, number one, it would purify the church. It would rid the church of murmurers and complainers and those that cause division. But secondly, and more importantly, it would reveal to the stony ground hearer, the false convert, the error of his ways. Can you imagine the tragedy of using the modern method of evangelism? That is, you preach the modern gospel. You go up to someone and say, excuse me, if you died tonight, would you have assurance that you would go to heaven? He says, well, I'd hope I would. And you say, you can know that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven. Would you like me to share with you how you can know? He says, yeah, yeah, just share. So, well, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day. If you repent for your faith in him, you can pass from death to life today. And you can know that if you die tonight, you go straight to heaven. There's no preaching of future punishment. No mention of judgment day, the very reason men are commanded to repent. There's no mention of hell. There's no opening of the divine law to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And you get a decision for Jesus. But you notice something isn't quite right. This guy has got no zeal for the lost. He's got no hunger for the word. He doesn't really get into fellowship. And so you make it your job to make sure he's continuing his faith. You read his Bible to him. You take him to fellowship, etc. You shield him from the sunlight of tribulation, temptation, and persecution. And you manage to do so right until judgment day when the eyes of a holy God burn their way into, your, into his guilty soul. When the books are opened and they stand before a holy and wrath-filled law and he's exposed to be a worker of iniquity. What a tragedy that you shield him from the sunlight. Wouldn't it be better to stand back and let the sunlight reveal to him his true condition? 
rather than give him a false assurance that he is saved. For years, I spent my energies running after those who proved to be false converts. I say, you're reading your Bible? You see, a true convert will desire the sincere milk of the word. He'll say, I rejoice to your word as one who finds great spoil. I say, are you getting into fellowship? But the true convert knows that he's passed from death to life because he loves the brethren. He will get himself into fellowship. He puts his hand to the plow and doesn't look back because he's fit for the kingdom. Luke 9, 62. Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. That word fit in the Greek is eutheros, which means ready for use. The soil of his heart was turned that he might receive the engrafted word, which is able to save his soul. Folks, this is going to sound a little radical, but if someone is soundly saved, he will never fall away. He'll say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The true convert says, I know in whom I have believed and persuaded this he, that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. He's able to keep me from falling, present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Listen to Psalm 26, verse 1. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I will not slide. Psalm 37, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. You see, that's a reference to the new covenant. When someone is soundly saved, God says, I'll I'll take my law and write it on their hearts and cause them to walk in my statutes. That's what happens when someone is soundly saved. They have regard to the divine law. No longer are they workers of iniquity. They don't lie, they don't steal, they don't kill, they don't commit adultery. They don't lust, they don't hate, they don't get angry without cause, they don't covet. It's those we erroneously call backsliders who fall away because they never slid forward in the first place. It says, according to the true proverb, the dog goes back to its vomit and the pig goes back to its wallowing in the mire. You know why a pig goes back to wallowing in the mire? Is it because he's a dirty creature? No, he goes back to cool his flesh. That's why pigs get into the mire and wallow. And that's what happens with a false convert. You see, the the modern gospel doesn't use the law as Jesus did. So the sinner is not crucified with Christ. See, Paul said the law was death to me. It was the law that killed me, Paul said. When the law is allowed to do its work, what it does is it drives us to the new life that's in Christ. So it's only a matter of time until a false convert is drawn back to the filth of the world to call his, to cool his sinful flesh, because it's still alive within his heart. He's never been crucified with Christ. George Whitfield said these words, That is the reason we have so many mushroom converts. That is, converts that spring up out of nowhere and then disappear. He said, because their stony ground is not plowed up, they have not got a conviction of the law. Am I saying it? A genuine convert never sins? Of course not. A Christian has, every Christian has a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes he does fall into sin. But that's the point. He falls into sin while the hypocrite, the false convert, dives into sin. The Christian sins against his will. But the hypocrite, the false convert, makes provision for the flesh. 
And folks, if you've ever got up and says, it's Monday, today I sin, then you're making provision for the flesh and you need to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. The Christian falls, the hypocrite dies. And there's the difference between the true and false. The Christian and the hypocrite, life and death, and heaven and hell. A young man once sat in my office and he said, Ray, he said, uh, Boy, I've been looking at you guys and I don't have what you've got. I have no zeal for the lost. I don't have a hunger for the word. Something's wrong in my Christian walk. And I said, hey, Richard, do you have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and temperance? And he said, no, to seven of the nine fruits of the Spirit. So I said, Richard, by your own confession, I don't see any evidence that you're soundly saved. Now, at that point of time, he did exercise the fruit of self-control. Because he told me later he wanted to rearrange my face. But instead of doing that, he went home, examined himself to see if he was in the faith, concluded that he wasn't, got on his knees and repented before a holy God. And within three months, he was such a fruit bearer that he was entrusted with the ministry within our church. Colossians 4 verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. I used to think, okay, I'll walk in wisdom toward them that are without the church. But the false convert sits within the church, the tear growing alongside the wheat, the bad fish alongside the good. They are without the body of Christ, but they're in the midst of God's people. And a false convert will waste your time. They will... Be hearers of the word and not doers. And I have spent hours and hours counseling those who prove to be false converts, just wasting my time. And I've come to realize they didn't need counsel, they needed repentance. Remember that big plant as it began to wither? If we looked at it and said, man, something's wrong there, I'm going to get fertilizer and put it up to the top leaf or branch. Is that going to help it? No. It doesn't need fertilizer, it needs good soil. And the false convert doesn't need the fertilizer of counsel. No, he needs the repentant soil of a good and honest heart before God. Years ago, I was an associate pastor, or one of the pastors at a very large church, and the senior pastor was real skinny. And he used to make jokes about it. He only had one stripe on his pajamas. He used to run around in the shower to get wet. (laughs) He says, I eat and eat and eat. And I never put on weight. I think he had his glorified body. (laughs) He's about six foot something and about 120 pounds. and Very slight man. And I tell you that for a reason. This pastor had a shepherd's heart. He, He just loved the flock. He would take a lamb in its arms in his arms and just, just so love his people. Very godly man, filled with the fruit of God's spirit. One night, there was a knock on his door at his home, 3 a.m. One of his teenage sons got up and opened the door. It was some guy wanting counsel at 3 o'clock in the morning. But knowing his father's heart, he didn't hesitate to go to the bedroom, knock on the door and say, Dad, someone wants counsel. He said, I'll be out in a minute. Tell him to go in the living room. So the father got up got dressed, came down the hallway, walked into the living room, and as he stepped into the living room, a 14-inch blade machete came down upon that guy, down upon that pastor, and so sliced into him when his sons heard him scream, he had two teenage sons, and rushed, they found his blood around the walls 
of the living room. They thought their father had been killed. They just got killed the guy that did it. The guy was a very angry gentleman. Next day, another pastor called me and says, Ray, did you hear what happened last night? I said, poor, heavy. He said, heavy? He said, that guy went to my church. And then he said, fancy that. Another Christian doing that to the pastor. I said, hang on a minute. I said, if some guy tries to cut the head off the senior pastor, you could probably come to the conclusion he lacks somewhat in the area of love, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And folks, we've got to stop embracing everyone that names the name of Christ and saying, you're a Christian, you've given your heart to Jesus. The Bible speaks of false brethren, false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, and true and false conversion. And I was walking along the street once, and I was about to step across the road. I stepped onto the road, and I heard, and I looked around, and there's a guy, there's a car coming down the middle of the road. And it didn't have a muffler. It was making a terrible noise. So I jumped back off the road, and as the car screamed past me, it suddenly slammed on its anchors, which is a down-under colloquialism, mean he... Stop. <laughs> and he backed up. And a gentleman got out. Now, I wish that I had a video camera because this was a classic stony ground hero. I knew this guy had threatened pastors in the inner city. As he got out of the car, I noticed he had four Jesus, sorry, three Jesus stickers on the front windshield of his car. As he stepped out, the shirt was unbuttoned to his navel, and amidst the hairy chest, a bit of jealousy there. <laughs> Confess that. <laughs> amidst the bush, there was this great big wooden cross. He said, Ray, can I see you for some counsel? And I told him I was busy for that decade. You see, a false convert will try and impress you with branches and leaves because he lacks fruit. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said, which come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves, or ravening wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every tree brings forth good fruit. Every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Now listen to his words. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Oh, so-and-so has given his heart to Jesus. He's coming on okay, except he keeps beating up his wife. Oh no, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. A fountain can't bring forth sweet water and bitter water. And in Scripture it says, Every tree that brings not forth good fruit will be hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Folks, we need to do what Scripture says, to know them by their fruits. Acts 20, 29. Paul says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And then Paul says, Also of your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after them. Of your own selves. And you start looking at the background of weird sects, such as David Koresh, Jim Jones, 
And you'll find they once gave their heart to Jesus. The Spirit speaks expressly, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith and begin listening to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You look at the backgrounds of those who are into the occult, or into heavy metal, occultic rock music, and do a little digging, and you'll find they are sad products of the modern gospel. False converts. Again, the true convert will never even look back, according to Jesus, let alone depart from the faith. If he finds himself in a lion's den, he doesn't hold his fist to the heavens. He gets on his knees before God. Fiery furnaces, lion's dens, and red seas will establish, strengthen, and settle the true convert. The genuine believer brings forth fruit with patience. Luke 8 verse 15. In other words, with a genuine convert, there is not spectacular quick growth. Why? Because the roots are going deep into the soil of God's word and drawing after moisture. The reason there was quick growth where that plant was on bedrock is because the goodness that should have been going into the root system was being pushed into the branches and leaves. Same with a false convert. You've got two people made decisions for Christ in your church. One guy has a trophy of grace. Man, he says amen louder than anyone else in the church. Hallelujah louder than anyone else in the church. He carries, he carries a big Bible. <laughs> he has more stickers, flashier t-shirts, and has Jesus saves tattooed in caps on his forehead. Well, the other decision for Christ, just sits in the front row listening to every word that's preached, he's always taking notes. Always taking notes. And what's happening is he's into closet prayer, confession of sin, returning things that were stolen, going to his parents and apologizing for dishonoring them. He's bringing forth fruit with patience, sending the roots deep down into God's word. Suddenly, loud mouth falls away while humble heart remains faithful. What's happened? Sunlight of tribulation, temptation, cause the false convert to wither and the true convert to send his roots deep into God and his word. Luke 10, verse 3, Jesus did something totally contrary to modern evangelism. This is out there. You know what Jesus did? He sent his lambs among wolves. That is so contrary to what we do with those that make decisions for Christ. Oh, he's made a decision. Keep him away from his old friends. No, no, no. Let the sunlight of tribulation, temptation, and persecution come upon him. If he's genuine, he'll grow. If he's false, He'll wither and die. See, some people think Judas was a Christian that loved the Lord and he somehow backslid. Well, was Judas genuine or false? Jesus said, one of you is a devil. There's a good clue. (laughs) Well, should we run around looking for Judas's? And if we see them, throw them out of the church. If we see a tear, should we pull it out and cast it? No, Jesus said, don't do that. As you run around pulling out tears, you may pull out a wheat. Don't do that. Just lead them. Judgment day, God will sort out the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tears. Because we really, really truly don't know. God only truly knows the genuine from the false. See, a friend of mine, think of Judas. A friend of mine said he used to look at paintings of the Last Supper. Every time he'd see a picture of the Last Supper, a painting, he'd look for Judas. Big hook nose, warts, 
dunning and counting money. But that's so contrary to Scripture. Judas was probably as good-looking as me, and he's probably good-looking. When a woman broke an alabaster box of ointment, an expensive ointment, one of the disciples complained, why wasn't the soul and the money given to the poor? Because Judas, that was Judas, he cared for the poor. No, he didn't. The Bible tells us he was a worker of iniquity. He was the treasurer and he was stealing money from Jesus and the disciples. He was a hypocrite. But he so hid it well. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples didn't say, oh, yeah, there's old hook nose down here. It's not a surprise to me. <laughs> they didn't say that. They suspected themselves rather than the honest treasurer who cared for the poor. They said, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Jesus said, it's he who puts the sop in the dish. Judas said, Grr! the disciples didn't even realize it was him then when he went out to betray Jesus. Some of them thought he had gone to give money to the poor. He hid it well. From the disciples, but not from God. And you and I may hide it from those around us, but not from God. Listen to Colossians 4, verse 7. And notice how Paul puts a seal of approval on certain believers. He says, All my state shall Tychicus declare to you, who was a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Well, there's a a word of approval, a seal of approval on Tychicus. He's a, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? You see, when Christians were being martyred for their faith, it's important that there was a seal of approval on believers. When you write a letter, you say, he's one of you, you can trust him. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, is one of you. Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you've received commandments, if he come to you, receive him. There's an endorsement. Epaphras, who was one of you, again, the seal of approval. A servant of Christ salutes you. And Luke, who needed no approval. The beloved physician. And then Paul says, and Demas greet you. And it's as though Paul looked at Demas and says, I, I really don't know about you. I can't see any fruit in your life. And further over in Scripture, in 2 Timothy 4.10, we see Scripture says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. False convert. In 1993, in the city of Auckland, New Zealand, I'm originally from New Zealand, although you wouldn't know, I've lost my accent, I've been living in California for 14 years. (laughs) But there was a a city of about a million people called Auckland. Make sure you get the pronunciation right. In the 80s, a man got on a plane in Los Angeles heading for Oakland. (laughs) He showed up in Auckland. He went 14,000 miles out of his way because of a mispronunciation. A group of about 200 people moved out of a church building into another building. It was a jewelry factory. And they started cleaning it up. And they got a pile of dust. And someone had the good sense to say, hey, take this dust to a refinery. And so that's what someone did. They took it to a gold refinery because it was a jewelry factory. There might be something precious in the dust. Well, the dust yielded $8,500 worth of gold dust. The refinery said... Got any, got any carpet? And they said, yeah, we've got a 12-foot square piece. They said, bring it in, we'll burn it. It yielded $3,500 worth of gold dust. They even got $350 worth of dust from the roof. 
when I go and visit this pastor, say, hey, Mary, how you doing? <laughs> Folks, God often sends us to the refinery because he wants to purify us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. We are in you greatly rejoiced, though now for a season, if need be. God will only put you in the sunlight, if need be. It's for your good. You're in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in a praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Psalm 66, verse 10 to 12. For you, God, have proved us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our loins. You caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire. We went through water. But you brought us out into a wealthy place. See, God takes us through fire not to burn us, but to purify us. He takes us through water not to drown us, but to cleanse us. And if you and I are genuine in our faith, we can say this light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us, not against us. An exceedingly eternal weight of glory. Let me pinpoint what I'm trying to say today. The great determining factor of whether or not we, with God's help, produce true or false converts is the right use of the law of God. Let me repeat that. The great determining factor in whether or not we produce genuine or false converts comes back to whether or not we imitate Jesus, follow in the way of the Master, and use the law lawfully to bring the knowledge of sin. Remember the words of that great preacher 150 years ago? He warned, evermore the law must prepare the way of the gospel. To overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope the introduction of a false standard of Christian experience, and to fill the church with false converts. Time will make this plain. Let me close with this thought. No, I'm not going to think it. <laughs> That's stupid. I'm going to speak it. How can you know what I'm thinking? To make an important point, I am going to teach you how to witness biblically to four groups of people. A Muslim, a Roman Catholic, a homosexual, and an intellectual. So listen very carefully. This is a wonderful principle. Okay, I'm sitting in a plane. There's a gentleman sitting next to me. I say, hi. <clears throat> How you doing? He says, I'm fine. <laughs> I say, where are you from? He says, India. I say, oh. Did you get one of these? It's a gospel tract. He says, I'm a Muslim. I say, oh yeah, would you consider yourself to be a good person? He says, oh yes, I'm a very good person. I say, well, can I ask you a few questions to see if that's true? He says, yeah, go ahead. I say, have you ever told a lie? He says, yes, sir. I say, what does that make you? He says, a lie. Have you ever stolen something? He says, yes, sir. I say, what does that make you? He says, a thief. And I say, Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever done that? He says, yes, I've plenty of times. I say, well, what's your name? He says, Adam. I says, oh, by your own admission, Adam, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart. You've got to face God on judgment day. And I shut him up under the law. I make him tremble before the God of creation. I let his conscience accuse him. 
I make room for the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, which is transgression of the law, righteousness, which is of the law, and judgment, which is by the law. I tell him he's an enemy of God in his mind through wicked works, that the wrath of God abides upon him, that he's by nature a child of wrath. I leave him with no hope, no means of escape, hanging by a spider web over the pit of hell, and then I say, oh, there is one name under heaven whereby you may be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to this earth, God in human form. Perfect, sinless man who gave his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And all your sin was laid upon the Savior. And neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, if you don't like that principle, if you don't like that method, for want of a better word, you can find a website with 10,000 pages of questions and answers when speaking to Muslims. <laughs> That's serious. But personally, I don't believe that you have to bury your head in the Quran to witness to a Muslim. You just have to bury your head in this. This tells us how to do it. God's word. So I'm going to share with you how to share your faith with a Roman Catholic. And of course, you and I know there are millions of Roman Catholics and Protestants who have never been born again. They are merely Roman Catholics or Protestants that have never found a place of biblical repentance. So I'm sitting on a plane. I say, hey, how you doing? He says, oh, good, good. So where are you from? He says, Minnesota. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. What do you do for a living? He says, oh, such and such. So, oh, yeah. Did you get one of these? It's the gospel tract. He says, oh, I'm a Roman Catholic. So, oh, yeah. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? See, I, I used to panic when someone says I'm a Roman Catholic. I say, oh, no. Now I'm going to I'm gonna have to deal with papal infallibility, the confessional, praying to the saints, purgatory, transubstantiation, and Mariology. Oh. But now, folks, I go deaf. I didn't hear him say I'm a Roman Catholic. I just say, oh, do you consider yourself to be a good person? He says, yeah, I'm a really good person. So, oh, yeah, have you told a lie? Ever stolen something? And I shut up under the law. Bring a knowledge of sin. Bring it with the foot of the bloodstained cross. Now, I'm going to teach you how to witness to a homosexual. I'm sitting in a plane. <laughs> I say, how you doing? This is good. I say, where are you from? San Francisco. <laughs> oh, yeah, what do you do for a living? Oh, yeah, I'm such and such. Oh, yeah. Did you get one of these? It's a gospel tract. He says, I'm gay. I say, oh, yeah. You consider yourself to be a good person? He says, yeah, pretty much. So, ever told a lie? Ever stolen something? Ever looked with lust? Ever used God's name in vain? And I shut up up under the law and bring to the foot of a bloodstained cross. Now, I'm going to teach you how to witness to intellectual. This is how to reach an intellectual. I'm sitting in a plane. The man next to me has got so many letters after his name, I think he's a mailman. Say, so, how are you doing? He says, good. Where are you from? Such and such. Oh, yeah, that's good. Did you get one of these? It's a gospel tract. He says, oh, 
I'm an evolutionist, and I lean strongly towards the controversial, spontaneous regeneration of the quantum embryonic theory of cosmological physics. I said, oh, yeah? You ever told a lie? simple. It is simple, folks. It's really simple. The Bible says don't go away from the simplicity that's in Christ. What we do is complicate the issue. We bring up subjects that are irrelevant. If you had been following me, when I, what would you be following me for? But if you followed me, when I witnessed to the last hundred people I witnessed to on a one-to-one basis, you would have noticed the subject of evolution came up no times. Not once. God bless you and your family. Seriously, when I'm doing one-to-one witnessing, the subject of evolution very rarely arises. When I'm open-air preaching, I deliberately bring it up just to bait in a crowd, just to bring them in. A little bit of bait when I've got the hook hidden. But when I'm doing one-to-one witnessing, when a guy is pinned to the wall, ten great cannons loaded, pointed at him, the subject of evolution is totally irrelevant. See, when we bring up a lot of these irrelevant issues, we're confining ourselves to the human intellect. The place of argument. Listen to Colossians 1.21. The ungodly are enemies of God in their mind. That's what the Bible says. The human mind is an enemy of God. The mind is a place of hostility, enmity towards God. Listen to Romans 8 verse 7. Scripture pinpoints now what the enmity is towards. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So the carnal, unregenerate human mind is at enmity to the law of God. It's offended by God's law. It's in a place of hostility. It rebels against the law of God. And if we want a sinner to surrender, what we must do is find an area of agreement, not a place of hostility, an area of agreement between him and God's law. Well, where is that? The sinner's conscience, Romans 2 verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, the conscience bearing witness. You see, the conscience isn't in a state of enmity towards God. It bears witness to the law of God. And what we must do is learn to do what Jesus did, to circumnavigate the human intellect and go directly for the conscience. I can't emphasize the importance of this. Think of it like this. It's World War II. You're in occupied France. You have to make contact with an ally. You've got a general description of this ally, and you've also got a secret code to make that contact. So you're in a bar, and you sit next to someone who fits the description. You slide alongside him and say, (coughs) the brown cow eats green grass on the left side of the white fence. He looks at you, slowly takes a drink, and says, the bald eagle flies over the white winter snow. There's your contact. And now you can work together for the worthy cause of the allies. Folks, we have an ally right in the heart of the enemy. The sinner's conscience. We have a general description. I mean, we know that everybody has a conscience. God has given light to every man. What we must do is make contact to further our worthy cause. How do we do that? Simply by the use of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The moment you say to any sinner, 
You know lying is wrong, don't you? His conscience will affirm the truth of the commandment. And I'm not kidding. I've seen it so many times. As you go through each of the Ten Commandments, you will see an unregenerate, ungodly, even atheist, begin to unconsciously nod. You watch for it. Mark my words. He will go, you say, it's wrong to lie, isn't it? He'll go, it's wrong to steal. You know that, don't you? It's wrong to commit adultery. God's written his law upon your heart. You've got a conscience, haven't you? The word conscience, we know, means with knowledge. Because God has given light to every man. Folks, the conscience will work with you for the worthy cause of the gospel. You say, but what's say he says, I don't believe the Bible. And this happens a lot. Suddenly you're disarmed when someone says, I don't believe the Bible. You think, what can I do? Well, tell me this. You come to me with a razor-sharp, two-edged sword, and you put the blade on my throat. It is so sharp, the mere touching of my flesh causes blood to bubble on the flesh. It is so sharp. And you say to me, one wrong move and I'll cut your head off. And I laugh and say, ha ha, I don't believe in swords. <laughs> Does my unbelief negate reality? Oh, I don't believe in swords, so the, <coughs> the guy's gone. No, it doesn't change a thing. And the Bible in Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp and an any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, when the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful, John Wesley pinpoints what that is. This is what Wesley said. It is the ordinary method of the spirit of God to convict sinners by the law. It is this being set at home on the conscience generally breaks the rock in pieces. It is especially this part of the word of God which is quick and powerful, full of life and energy, sharper than any two-edged sword. Wesley said, that is the law. So despite his professed unbelief, thrust the two-edged sword of the spirit into his heart. Kill him with the law and let the spirit of God make him alive through the gospel. The law kills, but the Spirit makes alive. Romans 7, verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. He says, how many of us are discouraged when some guy says, Ah, no, I don't believe that, and walks off. Remember what Paul did with Felix? He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And Felix trembled. See, Paul reasoned using the law. Obviously, righteousness which is of the law, judgment which is by the law, temperance. Felix's God was his belly. He was intemperate. And he says, ah, go your way. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. And maybe Paul walked off and said, huh, some good I did. Oh no, God's word cannot return void. The Bible says, Felix trembled. We don't know how he trembled. Was it a quiver of the bottom lip? We just don't know. But he trembled. Why? Because the law makes judgment reasonable. You leave the law out and judgment's not reasonable. How can God, who loves us, send anyone to hell? It'll make no sense until you bring in that law and reason using the law of God. Put it this way and then I'll begin to draw to a close, which is a meaningless preacher's statement. <laughs> Paul used it in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, finally, my brethren, two more chapters. 
But let me just show you how the law makes judgment reasonable. Imagine if I burst into your home and said, I'm a police officer. You're going away to prison for a long time. You're under arrest. And I just grabbed you and thrust you into prison. Well, what an unreasonable thing to do. You're going to be angered by such a thing. I mean, who might have burst in your home and said, I'm an officer, well, you're in prison for a long time. Slam. It's unreasonable. It makes no sense. But instead, if I came into your home and said, we've found those 10,000 marijuana plants growing at the back of your yard. I'm an officer of the law. You've broken the law. You're going to prison for a long time. Now what I'm doing is reasonable. It makes sense. I've read to you the law. You can understand your transgression and see why you're under judgment. And when we go up to sinners and say, God will send you to hell. You're sinners. You sin against God. It's unreasonable. It makes no sense to the sinner until we do what Jesus did and open up the divine law and read the law to him and show him he has transgressed God's law and God is holy and perfect and so is his law and they're under his wrath because they're sinners by nature. Folks, Kirk and I have got a, a deep burden to see a fulfillment of the cry upon the heart of Jesus where he said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest fields. Bill Bright, in his book, The Coming Revival, revealed that only 2% of today's church actually share their faith. Only 2% as a nation, and I say this as an American citizen, we've lost our way as a church within this nation. We've lost the ability to be salt and light because we haven't been true and faithful. Compare the, the contemporary church, 2% to the church of the book of Acts. And the reason they lived was to take the message of the gospel to a dying world. If you've got no zeal for the lost, listen to Charles Spurgeon's words. He said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Hear the words of the Prince of Preachers? Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. What would you think of a man who sat and read a book what a child drowned? Kids, hey man, save that child! He said, it's not my kid and this is a good book. Man, if a guy could say that, he's got a heart of stone. He has a, a moral and a legal obligation to reach out and save that child if it's within his ability to do so. And I don't know how multitudes can read the good book and say they love the Lord. Well, not a deep concern that every day, every 24 hours, 140,000 people are swallowed by death. Love cannot sit. And passivity while a child rounds. And love cannot sit on a pew and not be deeply concerned for the lost. If you're soundly saved, there'll be a cry in your heart, Oh God, please use me. Sure, you'll have fears, but you'll study on how to reach out to the lost. You say, but I've got a problem with the fear of man. So have I. I've got a problem with the fear of women. <laughs> I've been beat up by more women than men true. But another word for evangelism is love. That's all it is. There's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. It's like saying, he has the gift of feeding starving children. What a wonderful gift. That's his gift. It's not a gift. It's love in action. That's what evangelism is. And what you've got to do is say, oh God, let compassion swallow my fears. Every day we take gospel tracts across the road and give them out at the courts. We have a, a track called your day in court. And it's got a picture of the Supreme Court. Underneath it, it says, do not litter. If you litter, you could be cited. 
And we go across to this line of people at 8 o'clock every morning, about 40 to 60 people lined up to pay misdemeanor fines. We walk to the front of the line and say, Good morning, make sure your cell phones and pages are turned off. And we just go down the line, and people take tracks. And it's about their court case, the big one. They have to face the judge. And I know the son, he can get them off. But listen, I've been doing this probably given out 40,000 tracks outside the courtroom over the years. Every single day, I go over there, dragging my feet, and I come back clicking my heels. And that's what it's like with evangelism, folks. It's going to be that way. You're going to have fears. But you've just got to get before the Lord and say, Lord, let compassion swallow my fears. What would you think of a fireman who called himself a fireman, but he didn't bother to get out of his truck. He was just polishing things inside the fire engine and, and save people from a burning building. What a betrayal. And folks, we have a moral obligation to this generation. Paul said, pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly and speak as I ought to speak. So folks, uh, let's ask God to help us this day and offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, and say, God, please use me. If you're not a Christian today, you've heard the gospel clearly a number of times through the lips of Kirk Hammond and myself, that Christ died for your sins, rose again on the third day, God offers you everlasting life and commands you to repent. If you don't repent, you'll face him on the day of judgment and every secret sin you've ever committed will come out as evidence of your guilt. So today, say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And then bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Read the scriptures. Love God. And if, scripture says if you love God and you obey his, his word, he'll reveal himself to you. Read John 14:21. It comes in that or obedience and then he'll reveal himself to you. Not in flashes and visions, but he'll transform you on the inside and make you a new creature in Christ. You'll be born again. The things you once loved you will hate and the things you once hated you'll love. So radical, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He'll pass from death unto life. Let's bear in pressure. Father, we pray for those in this building who don't know you. We plead on their behalf, Lord, Bring them to yourself. Let there be conviction of sin. Let them be trembling before the God whom they have offended. And let them be fleeing to Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We pray for the rest of us, Lord. We pray that you would help us move from 2% to 100% of your body, being true and faithful witnesses to tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, your burning and shining light to this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.